0: of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the Century of Lies. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. I'm glad you could be with us. If you're not a regular listener to our other program, Culture of Baggage, perhaps you didn't hear the uh, following uh, little segment we call The Official Government Truth, put together by Mr. Winston Francis. We produce that because uh, we invite the drug czar and everybody on down through the hierarchy to come on our programs and defend the drug war We even offer them $1,200 cash if they would be willing to do so. No one's ever taken us up on that offer because they are such cowards. But in order to introduce the subject matter for this week's program, I'm going to share last week's official government truth with you right now.
1: Here's a news flash. The undermanned, underfunded, ill-equipped drug legalization movement will never end the drug war. Despite their efforts, the scope of the drug war continues to expand from illicit street drugs to prescription pain medication to tobacco and alcohol. For decades, high-ranking DEA officials have said publicly that they wish to criminalize the use of tobacco and alcohol. And now, if you're paying attention, you'll see it beginning to happen. Not just across the country, but across the globe. Governments everywhere are placing restrictions on smoking. First in restaurants, then in bars, than in all public buildings. Come on, you know the drill. The goal of course is to ban smoking completely and save the lives of the countless millions who would clearly be better off without their freedom to decide whether or not to smoke. It's good. The government knows what's best. Drug legalization advocates are losing the fight. The drug war just grows and grows. This has been Winston Francis with the official government truth.
0: I had no prior communication with them in this regard, but it seems that the Drug Policy Alliance uh, was thinking along the same lines. This past week they had an online teleconference featuring Mr. Ethan Nadelman, the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, Mr. Norm Stamper, the former police chief of Seattle, Washington, now a spokesman for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and Dr. Alan Rosenfeld, Dean of the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, all talking about the uh, portending prohibition of tobacco. First up, you'll hear uh, Ethan Nadelman talking about a recent Zogby poll, which they had conducted, which shows approximately 45% of Americans are for prohibiting tobacco.
2: And this call is to release a poll that we commissioned from the Drug Policy Alliance Commission by Zogby, a national poll, uh, asking the question of Americans, would you support a federal law making cigarettes illegal in the next five to ten years? Now, Drug Policy Alliance is an organization that works primarily on the issue of illicit drugs and advocates for harm reduction approaches, public health approaches, and decriminalization. We typically don't deal with the issue of cigarettes and tobacco, but more and more have become aware of the rising sense in which more and more people are saying, since cigarettes are terrible and deadly and kill and smell, why don't we just make them illegal? Nobody's talking about this in the public venue, but when we put this poll out, what we found in the release you saw was that 45% of Americans said yes said yes, they would support such a federal law in the next five to ten years. The most startling result was that among 18- to 29-year-olds, 57% said yes, they would support cigarette prohibition. That was 5% more than born-again Christians, 52% of whom said said yes. And it was almost as many as people who described themselves as very conservative. 60% said yes. We also found a very striking gender gap with 52% of women saying, yes, they would support such a law, but only 38% of men. Now, these results should be up on the Drug Policy Alliance um, website right about now. It's drugpolicy.org. The comment I want to make about this briefly is that I think that we're in the middle of an increasingly successful and effective public health campaign to reduce cigarette smoking, the ills associated with it. In fact, many people would argue that the campaign to reduce cigarette smoking has been far more successful than any of the campaigns to reduce illicit drug use. And it's relied on taxations and restrictions on time and place of smoking and sales and bans on sales to minors and what have you. By and large, all of us are very supportive of these things. What we want to do, though, is raise the alarm that the logical end of a smart public health campaign should not be criminal prohibition that if we move to the point of criminal prohibition, we may reduce the number of people smoking and the cancer deaths by somewhat, but we will generate vast black markets and all sorts of crime. I'm also particularly concerned that, especially among young people, there's a tendency not to be aware of what the consequences of criminal prohibition would be. There's a sense in this country generally that if something's bad, let's ban it, let's make it illegal. People are getting more comfortable with the notion of more and more bans on cigarettes, which are appropriate, but, not, but failing to make the distinction between time and place restrictions and high taxation and ultimate criminal prohibition. The final point I want to make is that typically what happens when one looks at the history of prohibitions throughout America, of drug prohibitions, is that when the use of a particular drug is done by people across society, from the wealthy to the poor, nobody talks about criminal prohibition. But when the numbers of consumers diminish... And when the consumers become disproportionately people who are young and poor and people of color, that's when criminal prohibitions begin to become acceptable. I think it's only a matter of a few years before we start seeing this happening, and I think it's important to sound the alarm now. I'm going to turn this over now to Norm Stamper, uh, my friend and colleague and the former police chief of Seattle. Norm? Thank you
3: very much, uh, Ethan. Uh, I am speaking to you from outside the uh, airport in Denver, which is... uh, uh, snowbound at the moment. I'm going to have to make my uh, remarks brief and sign off, but with a, uh, an invitation for anyone who wishes to ask uh, any questions of me to call me at 360 317 5761. And I apologize for any audio problems that uh, you may be experiencing on your end. I, I have to echo every word of Ethan's statements. I do belong to an organization called LEAP law enforcement against prohibition, Uh, we have given in the last several years 2,200 speeches uh, on the downside of prohibition. We have drawn parallels, of course, to our own country's uh, experience with alcohol prohibition from 1920 to 1933, the creation of a criminal underclass, which gave rise to unprecedented levels of violence uh, throughout our country, and especially in our large cities uh innocent people caught in the crossfire w- what we experienced uh in the last century uh, we are currently experiencing with the drug war uh and agree completely with uh, Ethan's assertion that the drug war uh has caused far more harm than good we believe that the prohibition of cigarettes uh would would escalate tensions uh, almost to unimaginable levels given the sheer numbers of people who are smoking we also agree completely that that uh, the the uh, reduction in smoking, some fifty percent in recent years, uh, has been extraordinary and yet predictable. A solid public education program, taxation, regula- regulation of that product, uh, has reduced smoking dramatically without a single person going to jail or getting a, even a citation for it. Uh, we in law enforcement uh, against prohibition are convinced that. Uh, uh, prohibiting cigarettes would actually uh, lead to an increase in, in uh, death, disease, uh, crime, and addiction, just as it has with all other drugs. So thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I do apologize to my colleagues, Ethan and, and Alan, for signing off now.
2: Okay, thank you, Norm. Can we hand this over to Alan Rosenfield, the dean of the Melman School of uh, Health at Columbia University? Uh,
4: thank you very much. Uh, Basically, uh, I'm in total agreement with both uh, uh, Ethan and Norm. I think what we've seen with drug use where so many particularly low-income minority people are in jail and where many of us, and there's a whole doctor's group that push for prevention, education, uh, treatment, but not for criminal prosecution. I think Norm's example of... uh, What happened when we tried to outlaw alcohol back in uh, years and years ago is what we would see with smoking. We'd see criminal activity. We'd see all kinds of the negative things that that Ethan uh, mentioned. From a public health point of view, education, the type of things that the Legacy Foundation, for example, has done to educate kids as to the uh, impact of smoking has had an impact. And I think uh, prevention education, I think we should... forbid uh, the companies from marketing and using their marketing expenses as ways to get tax deduction, so that we're actually, in effect, paying for their marketing effects, activities. Uh, I think uh, outlawing selling in to minors, which has been in place for a long time, should continue. But the focus should be on education. It should not be making uh, smoking illegal. The negatives that Ethan has outlined. Uh, something I totally agree with.
2: Okay, Alan, thank you very much. And now we can uh, take all your uh, questions, please.
0: Our first question comes
1: from Dean Becker,
0: Drug Truth Network. First off, I want to uh, thank you for bringing forward this subject. Uh, this, this ban against tobacco smoking seems to be gaining traction. Uh, just uh, last week in the city of Houston, They decided that it was no longer uh, going to be allowed to smoke in uh, restaurants or bars. And I'm wondering, will this not lead to, uh, I guess, smoke-easies or uh, other uh, underground uh, ways of uh, people sharing tobacco together in in, uh, public? Many of us would actually support
2: the bans on smoking in public places, and I think there's an important and vigorous debate about how far these things should go. I mean, there are now proposals to ban people smoking in public housing and in a range of other places or even to ban smoking outdoors. I think we need to be sensitive to um, how far this goes, uh, you know, and communities, I think believe, I think communities, local communities need to make sensible decisions while A, respecting individual rights, not just the concerns of other communities not to be exposed to this, and secondly, um, while being aware of the potential negative consequences. I don't know that we're going to see the sort of smoke-easies like old speakeasies or opium dens emerging until we actually have full prohibition. So I don't think that's a concern. I think it's also important that when we look at various ballot initiatives um, to increase taxation on cigarettes, I generally tend to support those, but one has to keep in mind the point at which the taxes go so high that they generate a vast black market that creates its own set of problems. I don't know that we're at that point yet, but it's something to be aware of.
4: Let me just add, I, I think the example of what New York has done, New York City, in banning uh, smoking in bars and restaurants, has been extraordinarily effective. It has not decreased the business uh, activities as people projected. And it's very important because waiters and bartenders and people exposed to secondhand smoke continuously, are, even if they're not smokers, are subject to the diseases uh, related to smoking. And I think that has been a major public health step. And what's fascinating is it's spreading to Europe, which I think is a a wonderful example. I think that kind of uh, preventive activity is absolutely appropriate. Banning it outside so you can't smoke anywhere would be going too far, I think. But in places where people accumulate and where secondhand smoke has an impact, that's a very important public health uh, issue. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question
5: comes from Philip Smith. Drug War Chronicle. Uh, this a question for Ethan. Ethan, I wonder how concerned you are uh, about the fact that trumpeting these findings will provide ammunition for the prohibitionist forces.
2: Yeah, no, we, we debated internally that issue extensively. I mean, the sense that if we surface this and show that almost you know, 57% of young people already would favor a federal law in five or ten years making it illegal, would this uh, actually aid, aid those who favor criminalization? I think that is a legitimate risk. But our thought was that we are on a real slippery slope right now, and that if this poll, if we were not doing this call right now and, and initiating this effort to try to get people on record, and if we were to do this poll in two or three or four years from now, when you actually begin to hear legislators and others start proposing this stuff, that the numbers would be even higher. So we thought it's important to surface this issue and raise the debate and raise the alarm while a majority of Americans still oppose the criminalization of cigarettes and to start that discussion and start that dialogue uh, around the notion that the logical end of a public health campaign is not criminal prohibition. Better to start that debate now before criminal prohibition starts to seem inevitable.
0: Harris County, the city of Houston, lives by the broken windows theorem of prohibition of just about everything. We already lead the world in the incarceration of our own people. And in the last few weeks, we've allocated $255 million to build another jail facility. We've hired an additional 55 prosecutors, and we've banned the smoking of tobacco in public buildings. I want to share one last closing uh, thought relayed by Ethan Nadelman during this Drug Policy Alliance teleconference. It's
2: one thing, and oftentimes a very good thing, to restrict the time and place of sales and consumption and to increase taxation, all of which are shown to be fairly effective in reducing cigarette smoking by young people and others. But to move to the point of total prohibition um, would be a mistake uh, just as alcohol prohibition was a mistake. Just look at the New York Times front page of the New York Times today about the horrific drug violence uh associated with cocaine and heroin down in Mexico. Um, you know, with criminal gangs earning billions of dollars with high levels of corruption. Uh if we were to move towards criminalization of cigarettes we would perhaps reduce the number of smokers to uh, uh, less than it is today, but we would criminalize tens of millions of people who would continue smoking or who would start smoking anyway. We would be filling prisons with people uh, uh, who, uh, who were smoking cigarettes. We would generate vast black markets. We would have all sorts of tobacco-related violence. You would see federal, state, and local agencies emerging to control this stuff through law enforcement, hiring uh, agents and undercover operations and wiretapping. So we would be generating a huge new enterprise for the criminal justice system, a huge new reason to fill Americans' prisons when we already have the highest per capita incarceration rate in the world.
4: And let me so just this add, is not
2: a road we should go down.
4: And let me just add, just as with drugs, we would see a heavy focus on minority populations, which would be a disastrous step in my opinion.
0: We already have 2.2 million U.S. citizens behind bars. The vast majority of them are there for carrying around some prohibited item or another. I think the uh, broken windows theory has had its day. Uh, if you listen to this week's Cultural Baggage, you heard uh, me give a sermon or a portion of a sermon that I gave this past Sunday, uh, my first uh, official uh, ministry as an ordained minister. And because of that, we have this week placed the Drug Truth Network reporters on the Century of Lies program.
5: This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's corrupt cop stories for the Drug Truth Network. This week we'll drop in briefly on Columbia, South Carolina, where the Associated Press reported October 19th that a former York County deputy has been busted for ripping off $1,200 in cash that was supposed to be used in undercover drug sales. William Graham, 37, worked in the county's special drug unit and was in charge of keeping track of those funds. Instead, he pocketed them. Now he has confessed and repaid the money, but still faces charges of embezzlement of public funds and misconduct in office. And then we'll go to Chicago, where two Chicago police officers trying to rip off what they thought was a drug dealer's cash stash went down in a sting operation Wednesday, again according to the Associated Press. Officers Richard Doroniuk, age 30, and Mahmoud Mike Shema, age 27, used information from a co-defendant to obtain search warrants to search self-storage lockers. In two raids, they stole $31,100 in what they thought was drug money, reporting no cash seizure in the first raid and only reporting part of the cash in the second. But the money had actually been placed in the lockers by the FBI and the Chicago Police Internal Affairs investigators. Daroniuk, Shama, and their co-conspirator have now been charged with conspiring to steal government funds. And so it goes. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories this week. Check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org and comment on them if you wish in the speakeasy on our
0: website. Terry Nelson spent 32 years working for the U.S. government as a Customs, Border, and Air Interdiction officer, He retired last year after 32 years of service as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel.
6: This is Terry Nelson speaking on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's all about priorities. Crimes with victims should receive just punishment, no argument. But that's not always the case. For example, there were approximately 1.1 million cars stolen in the United States in 2005. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, approximately 13% of motor vehicle thefts were solved. These are crimes against all of us because they involve the loss of personal possessions and result in higher insurance rates. Of the 1.2 million burglaries, 12.7% were solved. 16% of the 8.9 million property crimes were solved. Police did much better on the approximately 1.2 million violent crimes. They solved 45% of those. However, improvement could be made in every category if much-needed staff, time, and money, and equipment was not being diverted the three decades-plus failed public policy called the War on Drugs. It's a question of priorities. In Bullhead City, Arizona, a recent roundup was coordinated after undercover agents bought drugs from various suspects over a six-month period. So far, 19 people have been arrested in Operation Housekeeping, according to Lieutenant Steve Smith, Bullhead City Police. Law enforcement officers from five departments stand out Wednesday morning to round up 24 alleged drug suspects. The police also recovered 29 grams of marijuana, 279 grams of meth, 14 grams of mushrooms, six morphine pills, and eight methylcarbonyl pills, that's a muscle relaxant, plus paraphernalia, a couple of vehicles, and about 25000 in cash. So the police will spend six months investigating something that produced such scant results, yet Nevada ranks number two for vehicle thefts with approximately 1,115 per 100,000 population, or approximately 26,000 thefts of vehicles a year. Is this the correct priority? In St. Louis, Missouri... According to the Post-Dispatch, the Office of the U.S. Attorney and the St. Louis Circuit Attorney issued numerous criminal charges against drug suspects, and starting about 5 a.m. on Wednesday, teams of officers and agents began serving warrants and arrested 16 people. Authorities were looking for eight more. During the sweep, authorities also recovered four guns, some crack cocaine, and assorted gang paraphernalia, Hager said. According to the DisasterCenter.com, Missouri ranks 12th for vehicle thefts, with 443 for 100,000 population or approximately 25,000 motor vehicle thefts. Again, priorities. It should be apparent that we will never arrest our way out of the drug war. However, we can treat our drug problems with education and medical treatment instead of incarceration. It remains a question of priorities. Our police should be focusing all their efforts solving crimes against people, places, or things, and not chasing after nonviolent offenders. A program to war on drugs with a stated goal of reducing crime, drug addiction, and juvenile drug use, has done the exact opposite. It's time for a change. Let's work together for a better future for ourselves and our children. This is Terry Nelson at www.leap.cc, signing off.
0: Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway.
7: Since the U.S. invasion five years ago, opium production has soared in Afghanistan, The illegal harvest, skyrocketing 32-fold under U.S. occupation, has become the nation's leading export, potentially providing enough refined heroin to completely monopolize world markets. Generally overlooked, occupied Afghanistan's second most significant agricultural product is marijuana. Last year, the United Nations estimated that 75,000 acres were cultivated, and the country ranked second only to Morocco as a cannabis source. This year's crop is now mature and ready for harvest. Earlier this month, Canadian soldiers in southern Afghanistan found themselves under attack by Taliban resistance fighters who used thick forests of marijuana plants as both cover and camouflage. Last week authorities began eradication of mature marijuana fields in northern afghanistan infuriating impoverished local farmers whose livelihoods were devastated along with their crops this week ten tons of cannabis were reportedly confiscated by nato and afghan authorities from a truck stopped along the kabul kandahar road in other afghan news six german nato troops are under investigation after being photographed desecrating a human skull believed to have been recovered from a mass grave near Kabul. And local reports, still coming in, describe a recent NATO bombing mission in which as many as 86 civilians were killed. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network
8: harm reduction particularly things like needle exchange sanitary consumption rooms and substitution treatment with heroin or methadone has been under attack by some right-wing critics they argue that the support of drug legalizers for harm reduction must be merely a means to an end what nonsense drug legalizers support harm reduction for the same reasons any other sane, compassionate person would reducing harm is a good thing it could be argued that harm reduction work takes time and energy away from policy reform Cynics could even argue that by mitigating the damage done by prohibition, harm reduction takes away some of the impetus behind reform. In that sense, harm reduction and drug policy reform do not go hand in hand. Critics argue that harm reduction will soften attitude toward drugs and drug users. That may be true, and that's a good thing. One of the problems caused by prohibition is the demonization of some drugs and drug users. Society benefits if harm reduction policies help us to see drug addicts as real people. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org.
0: Okay, I've got just enough room to give you uh, the bulk of this sermon I gave this past week. The machinations of drug war began in the early part of the 20th century, was certified with the Harrison Narcotics Act in 1914, and has been sanctified over the years to where the U.S. Supreme Court now speaks of a drug war exception to the Constitution. The war of terror, for certainly there is terror inflicted by both sides, example, shock and awe, The long war, as the Bush regime tried to reframe it, has taken the longevity and thus the success of the drug war and used these unconstitutional ways and means of the drug war as the framework for the war of terror. Embracing eternal fear empowers our enemies and becomes a voracious parasite and a blight on our nation's soul. We need to use common sense, clear logic, and value proportion. We need to embrace reality. Genesis, chapter 1, first page of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, end quote. We need to analyze facts and forego the frenzy of fear. Before drug prohibition, you could send your kid to the store to buy a fifth of whiskey, a Coca-Cola with cocaine extract, and a plug of opium. Before drug prohibition, drug gangs were unheard of and the cartels were farmers scrambling to make a living before drug prohibition roughly two percent of americans used hard drugs today two percent of americans use hard drugs before prohibition less than two percent of americans used marijuana today well over fifty percent have tried it before prohibition children were not enticed to use drugs by gangsters and were not ensnared into the violent gangs by trying to make fifty times what they can make at the mall before drug prohibition we were not squandering trillions of dollars investing millions of police man-hours in searching trunks and under the seats of cars for that baggie of flowers. Before Prohibition, we had better focus to catch the real criminals amongst us, the murderers, rapists and molesters. Before Prohibition, we were not deceived. We now spend more than 50% of our law enforcement dollars and our criminal justice dollars on finding and arresting more than 1.6 million Americans each year for bags of plant products. Just for marijuana alone, we arrested more than 785,000 of our kids last year for the one drug that's never killed anybody, ever. I say again, we have been duped. The drug lords indeed run both sides of this equation. I say that those who love the drug war, who embrace eternal wars on us, on we, the people of these United States do not have our welfare or that of our children in mind. They are indeed, without any doubt, the best friends the drug lords could ever hope for. We must stand for truth or forever kneel to fear. Well, that's the end of the sermon. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it emboldens you. You know, that's the whole point. That's why I do these radio programs. You know, my goal is that the next time you're involved in a conversation at the water fountain, over the fence, at the schoolhouse or the church house, and somebody says, wait a minute, are you some kind of legalizer? That you step up and boldly say, you damn right I am. Let me tell you why. That's it. I'm out of here. Prohibido, es stock aqui aquí. Let's go. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition. The Century of Lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Our engineer, Philip Guffin.